0: When we were able to win this sort of fight with Amy Gutman, I viewed it as a celebration, but it was definitely, we won a battle, not a war. Hello, and welcome to the podcast
1: of the University of Pennsylvania A's and Alumni Network. On this podcast, we aim to document the oral history of the ever-changing, multifaceted Asian American experience on Penn's campus across generations, as well as to share and highlight our alumni stories. Welcome to episode two of our five-part miniseries honoring the Asian American Studies Program on the twenty-fifth anniversary. My name is Paula Bautista, class of twenty fourteen, and I'm your host. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet. Pause this episode and go back into our feed to find the first episode of this series where we dive into the history of the field of Asian American Studies as a whole. As we learned then, Asian American Studies, or ASM for short, emerged from the Third World Liberation Front student strikes at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley in 1968 and 69, that established the broader field of ethnic studies. So, now the question is, how did Asian American Studies make its way across the country to Penn, and why did it take 28 years for the program to be founded in 1996? In doing research for this series, one name that came up early on was Dr. Roseanne Rosé, the first director of Penn's ASM program. To give you a better picture of what Dr. Rosé was like, here's Dr. Faria Khan.
2: Hi, my name is Faria Khan. I'm the co-director of the Asian American Cities program at the University of Pennsylvania. So Dr. Roseanne Roche is Professor Emirata of Sanskrit in the South Asian Studies Department and an amazing individual who was approached by many students to really begin thinking about their own experiences as Indian Americans, as Asian American students at Penn. She actually led the charge for them in partnership with the students to really found Asian American cities at Penn. She was trained in Belgium as a white woman in Sanskrit and she recognized the politics of all of this. And she also recognized that she was really pushing for a discipline that she was not trained in, but that she felt very strongly was incredibly critical to the university.
1: While Dr. Rosé declined to be interviewed for this podcast, she did send along a paper she wrote in 2000 entitled Asian American Studies at Penn, Programmatic and Personal Reflections. That paper formed the backbone of this episode, and you'll hear excerpts of it read throughout the episode. According to Dr. Rosé, the first course offered in Asian American Studies at Penn came in the 1970s, though it was not taught by an Asian American professor.
3: In response to student requests, F. Hilary Conroy, a senior professor whose primary field was East Asian diplomatic history but whose dissertation had been devoted to Japanese immigration in Hawaii, taught the Asian American experience until his retirement in 1990.
1: While Professor Conroy likely didn't see a large number of Asian students on campus in his time, that would soon change. Due to the repeal of the nationality-based immigration quotas as part of the 1965 Immigration Act, the number of Asian immigrants to America would grow. By the mid-80s, their children who were born in the States would be of college age ready to enter university. For example, from 1986 to 1991, the proportion of Asian students in Penn's freshman class doubled from 10% to 22%. So, in the late 80s, the growing Asian American population started organizing, and while there were certainly a number of cultural groups on campus serving Asian students' needs, they weren't necessarily political in nature. One exception to this was the Asian American Students Alliance. Now, they weren't ever formally recognized as a group by the university, but rather, they were a group of like-minded students who were agitating for change on campus to better serve Asian American student needs. To learn more about them, I turn to two former members, Dr. Scott Kureshige and Ellen Somakawa.
4: My name is Scott Kureshige. I graduated in 1990 from the college with a BA in history and with minors in what was then called Afro-American studies and economics. Currently a professor at TCU in comparative race and ethnic studies.
5: I'm Ellen Somakawa. I was at Penn somewhere from the mid-80s to the early 90s. I'm currently the executive director of the Folk Arts Cultural Charter School.
1: Now, Scott and Ellen came from very different backgrounds prior to meeting at Penn. Ellen and her brother, originally from Minnesota, grew up as the only Asian kids in their all-white school she learned about her family's history of Japanese internment at the age of 15 years old.
5: I was at one of those fundraisers that your parents drag you to, and somebody handed me this flyer that said, you know, these internment camps, don't let them happen again. And that was the first time I had ever heard about the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans, which includes basically all of my family and every Japanese American person I knew of. Honestly, I was just so completely outraged. You know, I went to my civics teacher, I was like, what do you mean by <laughs> trying to teach me civics without teaching me you know, like this important stuff in American history? I remember she said, why didn't your parents teach you about it?
1: That lackluster response from her civics teacher spurred Ellen to get involved in self-education about Asian American topics with other activists in the Twin Cities before ultimately making her way to Penn for grad school. Meanwhile, Scott, coming from the more diverse area of Southern California, didn't have a lot of political consciousness about being Asian American before transferring to Penn in his sophomore year. That would soon change with one of his very first classes on campus.
4: And so really the first class I took, U.S. history, was Dr. Richard Beeman. He shows up in his kind of like cape and a bow tie, very much the kind of, you know, professor you would see in a movie. And the first thing he says is, whatever you learned in high school, this is gonna be nothing like that. We're not gonna talk about history the way you would study it for like trivial pursuit. We are going to talk about trends and dynamics and things that shape the course of history, not because one individual did something, because there were these broader social forces that we're trying to understand. I just got really fascinated by history. I ended up taking the second semester of U.S. history, I think it was 20A and 20B it was called then. And 20B was amazing because I got to take that class with Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. She was a junior professor then without tenure. Now she's one of the most famous African-American historians. And so to, to be able to take a class with a really prominent African-American woman scholar, someone who's credited with coining terms like respectability politics, she became really my mentor, my advisor, She really pushed me to do more rigorous work. You know, on the academic side, I really began to focus on African-American history and African-American studies.
1: Now, this is about the time when Ellen came to campus trying to be a quote unquote serious academic.
5: In my life, I've gone through these periods of kind of political activism and then kind of trying to turn my back away from it. And saying I'm gonna go this other way. And actually coming to Penn was one of those periods when I was like, okay, I'm gonna be serious about being a graduate student. I'm gonna get a doctorate. I'm gonna become an academic. You know, I'm not gonna get embroiled in politics. Then after a few years of, you know, trying my best to be a good graduate student, there's just a part of you that can't deny the need to speak out and to, you know, live that political part of yourself. So I started drifting into politics and I started getting involved mainly with undergraduate students who were also looking for Asian American presence at Penn and interested in Asian American community issues and interested in Asian American studies
4: but we met once a week one of the important things that i think had a big impact on me is we just did self-education i saw who killed vincent chin for the first time at one of our own meetings and that movie just like changed my whole life i mean i remember i was in tears through most of it but you know we were very vocal and so like i kind of crossed over the multiracial student activist crowd and then We formed this group called the Asian American Student Alliance. And initially it was just like five or six of us.
5: And our first campaign, it was funny because we said, okay, let's do an easy campaign of getting the Oriental Studies Department to change their name. And that was not an easy struggle at all. It ended up taking a long time and being a
1: big long fight. Parallel to Asian American Students Alliance, another student group developed called the Asian American Student Task Force, who would later merge with, and take the name of, Students for Asian Affairs, or SAA. This group was advised by longtime Penn Administrator Joseph Sun.
6: My name's Joseph Sun. I retired from the University of Pennsylvania in 2015, uh, after 31 years of full-time service there. In 1990, I, I became a full-time assistant dean in the College of Arts and Sciences, and I would peg that as a time when I began to coalesce around Asian American students. Part of my hiring was that in my job description, in a job at Penn, my duties included, specifically, outreach to Asian American students. You know, students formed SAA saying, we're gonna be focused on lobbying and advocacy and pushing the agenda along. One of these students was Kate Lam.
7: My name is Kate Lam. I graduated from the College of Arts and Sciences in 1992. I currently work for an electric vehicle enablement company.
1: Kate became aware of her own identity as an Asian American by talking to other students in Students for Asian Affairs. Some of their earliest work was around bringing awareness about potential racial violence on days such as Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. It
7: wasn't until, as I talked of my friends who were active in that, you know, Chris Ng being one of them, and and he actually sat me down and started talking to me about something called Asian-Americans. It wasn't until then that I became more cognizant, right, why, you know, when we have Remembrance Day, Pearl Harbor Day, the implications of focusing specifically, let's say, on the Japanese bombing also have effects. Japanese hatred. Asian hatred? How do we discuss issues like this sensitively? How do we help prevent or at least bring out in the open with students' potential, as I said, fallout from such portrayal in the media? Very much similar to COVID nowadays.
1: Now, one of the biggest topics that both groups, Asian American Student Alliance and Students for Asian Affairs, both found common ground on was the issue of the lack of Asian American studies on campus.
7: I don't remember a lot of developments or progress being made towards the inclusion of Asian Americans as a subset of American history.
4: I think it's definitely fair to say that most of us were inspired by the radical origins of Asian American studies through the third world strikes at, you know, San Francisco State and Berkeley. We had read about them. We had watched films about them. You know, at that time, they were only like 20 years in the past. And we definitely recognized that power concedes nothing without a demand that you sometimes, you know, have to really take a bold stand. We certainly didn't shut down the (laughs) campus. We weren't able to do anything that dramatic, we didn't even do any kind of civil disobedience or anything everything we did was just, you know, basic.
5: And so we started just doing sort of agitational things. We would do skits in front of the library about the lack of Asian American presence at Penn. Or we started just putting up posters saying there's a hole in our curriculum. There's no Asian American studies at Penn.
4: So we would be on Locust Walk. We did an event called Airing Dirty Laundry, where we just put up an old clothesline with like, the clothes were like posters that said things like, you know, Penn does not have a single class on Asian American studies. We sort of tried to build coalitions with other students of color. We wrote a lot of letters to the editor over the years. We had educational pamphlets that we found. Remember, this is before the internet, or at least before any of us used the web. And then there were occasions where we tried to go to some of these university, you know, council meetings or meet with administrators. And, you know, that really went nowhere. When I went to the dean of the college, it was a man named Norman Adler. And I asked him, Can we have one Asian-American studies class like anywhere in the college? (laughs) I would like to take one Asian-American studies class before I graduate from Penn. And his response was, that's not a big enough topic to to devote one entire class. He said, you know, you should go talk to Ava Marowska. She's in sociology and she teaches about immigration. And see if she can may, maybe do one or two weeks about Asians in her immigration class.
1: One quick clarification Scott was talking to the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Penn's liberal arts school for undergraduates. The college is a branch of the larger umbrella of the School of Arts and Sciences, or SAS, which includes graduate level studies. Scott would try his luck with the Dean of SAS. The dean of
4: SAS at that time was a senior scholar named Hugo Sonnenschein. And so he used to have these just open office hours where anyone could go. And so I found out about it. And I said, well, I'm just going to go ask him, hey, like, can you fund some Asian American studies classes or at least one? And I explained to him, you know. I'm an African-American studies minor. These classes have been life-changing for me, and they've really made me want to learn more about Asian-Americans and how our story connects to, you know, this broader U.S. history. And he literally, this was his exact words, and I'll, I'll just never forget this. He said, well, let me tell you something. The only reason we have Black studies is because Blacks have had this shit kicked out of them throughout history. And you can't say that about Asians. And that's why we don't have Asian American studies. You know, I'm sure he was some kind of liberal minded person, but he came of age during mid 20th century when to be a progressive anti-racist was to be colorblind. To be fair to him, I think that's where he was coming from. He thought he was a very tolerant minded, colorblind believer in equality and civil rights. Um, And he just didn't see any reason why these Asian Americans should come along (laughs) and sort of,
1: you know, demand the same things. Meanwhile, Joe Sun, as assistant dean in the college, brought SAA in touch with the chair of the now defunct American Civilizations, or AMCIV, department.
6: So somewhere in the background, coincidentally, the American Civilizations department. It was chaired by Dr. Murray Murphy. So Murray and Melvin Hammerberg, he was also on the MCIV faculty, and a fellow named Rosen, I forget his first name, who was from comparative literature. I have memories of sitting down with the three of them at their invitation to talk about how MCIV can help organize Asian American Studies.
1: Whether it was the AMCIV Department's ally CEP with the cause of Asian American Studies or Scott Kurosige's interactions with Dean Sonenschein, one way or another, the faculty and administration were made aware of the growing interest in Asian American Studies. And it paid off.
4: I think I went back to meet with him. Maybe he went back to Princeton or something. So he was leaving as dean. And, and you know, at the end of the year, now I know I'm a department chair, you've got to reconcile your budget and spend down different things. He said, you know what I'll do for your kid, basically? It's like, I'm going to throw $5,000 towards a task force to look at Asian-American studies at Penn. He told me this personally after I was just kind of back in his office begging him. You know, I graduated. I wasn't part of that task force. That's where I think Dr. Roche came in.
1: As Dr. Roche notes,
3: With the support of then-Dean Hugo Sonenschein, Jean Wu, then-Dean of the Division of General Studies and Lecturer of Psychology at Bryn Mawr College, was recruited as an adjunct lecturer to teach a two-semester sequence on the Asian experience in America.
1: Now, Jean Wu wasn't a stranger to Penn. She already knew Joe Sun and Kate Lamb, and other SAA students went out to Bryn Mawr to talk to her to try to recruit her.
7: We we actually went around a few of us. I remember taking the train to visit Jean about you know coming to Penn and
1: lecturing. Jean also knew Ellen So-Macala. Ellen had gotten involved with local advocacy group Asian Americans United, or AAU, and after leaving Penn, Ellen would become their director.
5: When Jean Wu was out at Bryn Mawr, she was very active in Asian Americans United, through her Asian American Studies courses, had a really steady stream of Bryn Mawr students going to AAU and volunteering. Our involving Jean Wu was all related to that common history of work together with her.
1: With Dr. Wu teaching her course in the fall of 91 and spring of 92, housed in the American Civilizations Department, other lectures were soon brought on in subsequent years. Siwin Law, who we heard from in last episode, taught a course on Asian American perspective on government policy, and Joe Sun also brought in Elise Ahn, a graduate student at Rutgers to teach a course on Asian American literature, as well as Franklin Odo, renowned Asian Americanist, who would take over Gene Wu's course during his sabbatical and later become the director of the Asia-Pacific American program at the Smithsonian. Around this time, we start to see more faculty involvement in working to develop Asian American studies. Dr. Rosé.
3: With the support of then-Dean Rosemary Stevens and Associate Dean Richard Beeman
1: Remember, Richard Beeman was that cape and bow tie wearing professor that blew Scott Kiyosige's mind on his first day in class.
3: A Dean's Advisory Committee on Asian American Studies was formed. Although this was the first committee formally charged with representing Asian American Studies concerns, its composition was largely informal. The Dean did not select us, We were a group of self-recruited and co-opted faculty, some Asian-American, some not, Asian-American staff, and Asian-American graduate and undergraduate students. We shared a common intent to lobby the dean in support of Asian-American student demands for a program in Asian-American studies.
1: In the fall of 1992, the dean's advisory committee was able to invite an external committee of scholars to provide recommendations for establishing an ASM program at Penn. Members of this committee included Dr. Gene Wu, but also Dr. Gary Okahiro, who we heard from last episode. He recounts one particular exchange on that visit.
8: My name, Gary Okahiro, and I'm a professor emeritus at Columbia University and a visiting professor at Yale University. We met with administrators. We met with the chairs of relevant departments like history, sociology, anthropology, political science. Those would be likely places for Asian American faculty. We went over how to jointly appoint or to devise a program, a model curriculum for the program. Now, what stood out in my memory were these meetings with the dean and with a faculty committee, and they were quite receptive, I must say. But over lunch, one of the chairs of a department said to us, if you guys want Asian American studies, you guys have money, Asians have money. Why don't you just invest in Penn with your money and we'll have a program here. Now that really pissed me off. It pissed me off for several reasons. One is this assumption, that all Asians have money. And second, and probably more important, since when does money determine academic or intellectual contributions? Anyway, we somehow overcame that.
1: In the spring of 1993, the external committee made its recommendations, which were to hire a senior director as well as two more faculty members in different departments for a total of three hires to establish an Asian American Studies program at Penn. However, due to various limits on hiring new faculty in place at the time, Dean Stevens was somewhat reluctant to initiate a hiring search. One thing that perhaps helped sway Dean Stevens' mind, as was well to continue to bolster student support for ASM, was the hosting of the Conference of the East Coast Asian American Student Union, or ICASU, organized by Students for Asian Affairs and Joe Sun.
6: And for that long weekend, 1,400. Asian American students from up and down the East Coast descended on Penn. Boy, did it draw a lot of attention. (laughs) You know, both among the student community and also the faculty staff took notice. In my memory, that was a watershed moment for the university as far as student activism goes and student awareness and awakening goes. Around
1: this time, Joe was tapped to serve as interim director of the Greenfield Intercultural Center or GIC, which supported minority students on campus. Alan Somakawa also served as part-time graduate program coordinator for GIC. Having known Dr. Rosé from his time in the college, Joe reached out to see if the South Asian Studies Department would be able to contribute funds for students to attend the Conference of the Association for Asian American Studies, or AAAS, that was happening in Cornell that summer. Coincidentally, Dr. Jose was working on developing a new writing seminar that was soon to become a requirement for freshmen.
3: On the principle that students write best about what interests them most, I cast my mind back to the most memorable papers I had received in my old course. Since my classes in Indian languages and culture had increasingly become populated with second generation Indian Americans, what my students had most often wanted to write about had to do with issues of identity and ethnicity. I asked leaders of our undergraduate South Asia Society what they thought of my offering such a course. Their reaction was so ecstatic that there was no backing away, even if I had wanted to.
1: This course would eventually become a writing seminar that Dr. Faria Khan would take over from Dr. Rosé.
2: I was the teaching assistant for Roseanne's course, which was called Writing about the Indian American Experience. After that first year where I was her TA, she turned to me and she said, you know, you really should teach this course. And so the following year, I taught it.
1: Now, as someone who originated from Belgium, Dr. Rousse might not have originally been an Asian-American scholar herself, but she certainly threw herself into learning as much as she could about the field in preparation for this course. As such, she accepted Joe invitation to attend the AAAS that summer. A
6: time came when, uh, when, when I approached her to ask if she might take an interest in what we're trying to get done with Asian American Studies. And she was at first skeptical already. So It's like, what is this? It's not her field. I just, I happened to know that the Association for Asian American Studies was taking place at Cornell. And I was planning to go and I reached out to Roseanne and said, hey, if you want to better understand whether Asian American Studies is real as an academic discipline, why don't you come? So she agreed and we went. And I think that was transformational. I think that was a, a turning point as well. She, she saw that this was a serious scholarly community. You know, then we talked more about, well, how about helping us out a pen? Long story short, she agreed to it. The whole thing would not have really gained legs without Roseanne. She was relentless. Once she became convinced that this is legitimate and appropriate and much needed on this camp, she went for it. She didn't stop.
1: That fall of 1993, as Dr. Rosé began teaching her freshman writing seminar, an interdisciplinary search in Asian American studies was approved. Dr. Rosé on that process.
3: Benjamin Shen of astrophysics, Peter Kahn of English, and myself, members of the advisory committee, were to anchor the search committee. With recently appointed ethnomusicologist Deborah Wong, two students, Ji Yunya, a graduate student in history, and undergraduate student Lily Lo, Chair of Students for Asian Affairs, would complete the search committee. The appointment of an undergraduate student on a search committee for a faculty position was highly unusual. If not unique, it constituted a clear recognition of the fact that this first search in Asian American studies was a direct result of Asian American undergraduate student efforts. Applicants were many, 118 in the first year, a total of 247 over three years, and a sizable pool of outstanding candidates, particularly in literature, sociology, and history was available. Departments in which appointments might be made cooperated fully and yet it proved difficult to attract our chosen candidates. Candidates repeatedly expressed concern of being the one and only asian Americanist on campus. Only in the third year, when concurrent searches for multiple positions were authorized, did we succeed in attracting our chosen candidates, two young scholars in the final stages of their doctoral work, Grace Cao in sociology and Mark Chang in English. Yet even this third year was not free of disappointment. A school-wide hiring freeze imposed in January 1996 canceled a third appointment just days before it was scheduled for a final vote in the Department of History. Although all offers, already rendered, were honored, no new ones could go forward.
1: Now, if you remember, the recommendations from that visiting external committee with Gene Wu and Gary Okahiro were to hire three faculty, a senior director and two other faculty members. Yet, with Dr. Cao and Dr. Chang being the junior faculty, where was that third senior director? Well, in the absence of this hire, Dr. Rosé would go on to assume the mantle of the first director of the ASM program despite being not Asian American herself, which, as she noted,
3: It brought back concerns I had entertained all along about breaching the principle of Asian American self-empowerment, which is foundational for Asian American studies.
1: This model of bringing in an external visiting community to make recommendations, to then having a senior faculty, who was most likely not trained in Asian American studies themselves, dedicated a few years of their lives to building out an ASM program before handing off the directorship to a more traditionally trained Asian Americanist, would come to be known by Dr. Okuhiro as the pen Model.
8: Roseanne was fantastic because you need a senior professor on your campus who will say, I am going to take on this program. She was not trained in Asian American studies, and she realized that she was not an Asian-Americanist, and, but she went to all of our, a lot of our meetings, the Association for Asian-American Studies, she talked to people, she recruited faculty, and that was the key. So that, to me, is the Penn model. I can say, just myself, from the Midwest, to the South, to the Northeast, I must have visited at least 100 campuses to promote the field of Asian-American studies. And everywhere I go, I suggested that kind of model, the Penn model.
1: In any case, with Dr. Rosé as director, alongside Peter Kahn and Lynn Lees as senior faculty, and Grace Cao and Mark Chang as junior faculty, the steering committee for the Asian American Studies program was officially recognized in fall of 1996. A plan for an undergraduate minor program was approved in January 97, and the first courses were offered later that fall. Eventually, in 2001, Dr. H. Roe azuma of History would become the third overdue appointment, though Dr. Rosé would retain directorship until about 2003. After almost a decade of agitation and activism from students, faculty, and community members, Penn finally had its ASM program. But that was only the first step. When we come back, we'll look into the early years of the ASM program, the immediate impact it had on student life, as well as one of many challenges it would face about 10 years in. That's after the break. My or have
7: the source of eye
6: Just think about seeing you later Send shivers down my spine Save the train from Washington station step out in a side
1: Just you and I. So, we just heard how it took a village to simply establish the ASM program at Penn after almost 10 years of work from the late 80s into the early 90s. But what came next? Well, in the first few years of the ASM program, in addition to the courses offered by the full-time faculty, a number of adjunct lecturers were brought in to teach courses in a variety of disciplines. ASM also received an office space, though no full-time administrative staff and only one work-study student. In January of 1998, then-University President Judith Roden convened the Asia-Pacific American Student Affairs Committee, made up of administrators, faculty, staff, and graduate and undergraduate students to, quote, consider issues unique to the Asia-Pacific American students at Penn and to develop specific and concrete recommendations to resolve them. One of the key findings of the committee was that for about 1,700 Asian and Asian American undergraduates, there were only 15 Asian American administrators on campus, with some of those being dedicated to graduate student programs only. The committee recommended that VPO, the Vice Provost of University Life, should aggressively hire staff to serve this growing population. This paralleled students who, through their ASM courses, were inspired to demand more of their university experience. While the Greenfield Intercultural Center certainly served some of these needs, GIC of course, had to split their resources among other minority groups on campus. This would lead to the 1999 student activism rallies incidents that led to the formation of the Pan-Asian American Community House, or PATS, which opened in 2000. If you remember last episode, we talked to Peter Van Doe, current director of PATS. The formation of PATS probably deserves its own podcast series, perhaps in a couple of years for PATS's 25th anniversary. But specific to this story, Peter's role as PATS director at the time had split duties, also serving as the assistant director for the ASM program. The first person to fill this joint role was Dr. Karen Sue.
9: My name is Karen Sue, and I currently teach in the Global Asian Studies program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I served as the assistant director of ASAM, or Asian American Studies, and the first director of PATCH, the Pan-Asian American Community House, uh, at Penn from 2000 to
1: 2002. Before taking on the PATS directorship, Karen had actually been one of those adjunct lecturers for ASM that I had mentioned.
9: I was actually teaching adjunct in Philadelphia. At Penn, the academic program had started, and that was very exciting, and students wanted more. You know, once there's an institutional space opened up, and thinking about the transformational you know, potential that opens up once students get engaged with Asian Marine Studies. It, It doesn't surprise me that students wanted to see more. So the year that I was teaching part time, I did see students organizing for Patch. I did attend some meetings and I attended the rally for Patch, really to support that student effort. I didn't know that I would later apply for these jobs.
1: Now, while Karen wasn't privy to the decision to have Azam and Patch be so closely integrated early on, the idea made sense to her.
9: The idea was that Azam and Patch would have a very symbiotic partnership, philosophically and practically, I think it makes a difference for students' education because the outside of the classroom experience can be very integrated with the inside of the classroom experience, and it's a more holistic, approach to education that I think is really important for students. A good relationship between the cultural center and the academic program is really key to creating that positive environment. You know, one of my fondest memories is just being able to have lunch with the students who were spending time in Patch. Not only that, but as in faculty would drop by to Patch too. And so sometimes there would be these moments when it's like, hey, you were absent from class today, <laughs> but here you are, <laughs> when an ASM faculty member walked in and, you know, saw a student who didn't make it to class that day. Everyone laughed. And, you know, I, I thought that was a great sense of community. Like, hey, yeah, you missed class, but we're, we're still all here, and it's all good, and you know, it's good to see you at Patch. We did have guest speakers. That's where the shared position made sense. If we were inviting a guest speaker for ASAM, you know, Patch would be a co-sponsor and vice versa. The graduate students becoming really active at the time was key. Um, at the time, Yun Mi Chang, she played an instrumental role in developing a graduate Asian American Studies group for
1: you know, graduate students who wanted to get involved. Dr. Fuya Khan, a bit more on who Yun Mi Chang was.
2: So Yunmi Chang actually was a colleague of mine. She was a graduate student in the English department. But Yunmi was a force. I mean, I remember when she was really interested in starting Asian American studies at the graduates level. And so we had a colloquium that she organized, and grad students would give talks. She had a reading group. She was incredibly motivated, and she was super inspiring. She went on to teach at the University of Indiana and then ended up at George Mason University. Very sad, we lost Yunmi to cancer a few years ago. Her mother reached out to me and said Yunmi was incredibly fortunate to have Asian American studies in her life. And so her mother donated additional funds, not only to support the Graduate Student Paper Prize, but also to support the ASM Fellows. And so an undergraduate research fellowship was established as well through that very generous donation.
1: Back to Karen Sue about the early years of Pats.
9: Students
2: wanted opportunities to
9: develop their full potential. So leadership, training, ways to build community. We were looking for where we could insert a program we could do that would provide an Asian American perspective, you know, for instance, in orientation, so that incoming new students who maybe hadn't had a chance to learn about Asian Americans in K through 12, if you get exposed during orientation, that also might make you, you know, interested in taking a course or, you know, Checking out patch and, you know, becoming a patch regular.
1: One of those students who ended up getting recruited via that orientation program was Dana Nakano, who we actually heard from last episode.
10: So my name is Dana Nakano. I graduated from Penn in 2004 from both the college and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. I also minored in Asian American studies. I am now um, an associate professor of sociology at California State University Stanislaus came like a week early to campus and one of the people that I met during this time was Jennifer Kwan, definitely somebody who was involved with the kind of creation of Patch, had been doing like this type of activism early on. She informed me of like this the, the orientation program and there was one on Asian American identity that was put on by Patch. So Karen, Sue, and Yenling Shek were already on campus and kind of feel like I got poached. And then kind of got sucked in, so so in that way, it was very much Patch. That was sort of my first interaction. But then I also will say simultaneous was looking for classes and came across an Asian American Studies freshman writing class that was taught by the late Mi Chang. It was just so different, right, from any class. I mean, it's my first semester in college. You know, it was small. I think there were 12 students. Um, all of us were Asian American. Um, it was just sort of giving us a broad survey of Asian American literature. You know, it was just a great experience to get to write about these things. And, you know, and, and she encouraged us to write our own experiences in relationship, right, to the various books that we were reading, which again was not necessarily something that I was told to do or was told was okay to do.
1: Yenling Sek was the graduate program coordinator at GIC. At the time, Pat shared Yenling with GIC and she would lead the development of one of Pat's signature programs, APALI, or the Asia-Pacific American Leadership Initiative. Dana would go on to become one of the first participants of APALI in the fall of 2001. But it is really this sort of melding and
10: understanding that leadership and identity are just linked together and that it's difficult to be an effective leader without understanding yourself and your community. A poly is simultaneously identity and leadership development. And so a lot of the programming right that goes into that is about us exploring our own identities, our communities, but then also giving us like tangible leadership skills like public speaking or things of that nature.
1: Later in his senior year, Dating would go on to become an APOLI facilitator and try to integrate some of the learnings of his ASM courses into APOLI. You know, when thinking about
10: my role as an APOLI facilitator, I think one of the things that I brought was a more learned perspective, right, on the Asian American experience uh, because of my um, involvement with the coursework.
1: Beyond his first writing seminar on Asian American literature with Yun Mi Cheng, Dana would go on to take enough Asian American studies courses to graduate with the minor, predominantly with the newly hired Doctor Azuma in history.
10: He so you know the other kind of joke and you know that I always tell people like, well, I'm his first student because he and I started at the same time, right, myself as an undergrad, but he as an assistant professor. And so that, I think, was really the turning point for me, is taking his class and then really starting to think about, like, okay, well, now I'm taking more than one class. What are the options and kind of getting involved in in Asian American studies, not just in the classroom, but also eventually um, on the
11: Undergraduate Advisory Board.
1: Another ASM UAB member at this time was Saji Philip.
11: Yes, I'm Shaji Philip, and I attended the University of Pennsylvania. I was graduating class of 2004, and I currently uh, work as a physician.
1: Shaji's first course was Faria Khan's writing seminar on the South Asian American experience that Dr. Rosé had developed.
11: And and that, that was a realization to me, that I couldn't just know about South Asia and South Asian Americans. I would have to know about the broader American experience across
1: immigrant groups. Dana and Saji, alongside other alums, such as Dr. Cliff Bersamira, who we heard from last episode, did a lot of work to try to help push enrollment in ASM through various means. You know, in a lot of
10: ways, we
1: were trying to figure ourselves out,
10: right? Like we were trying to figure out what what undergraduates could really do. Um, And so we would put on these sort of like conversations, right? You know, faculty might come in and,
11: give a talk about their research. And I think the biggest topics was increasing class enrollment. Part of that means getting classes that people want and supporting them and bringing awareness to it. So it was a lot of awareness. We worked on supporting the diversity requirement part of the curriculum at Penn. There was a push to have all students have, uh, at least in the College of Arts and Sciences, some part of their curriculum devoted to diversity and the understanding of diversity. That Advocacy of bringing education of uh, Asian American history as part of you know the larger movement of American studies really paved the way for the, a lot of things that I ended up doing or getting involved in later. Expecting that at the highest levels of whatever that institution in that place, it was, you know, deans and whoever approves curriculum to value this. That did become something that I realized was really valuable. And so that was a great thing that we got to be a part of as students.
1: Currently, the College of Arts and Sciences requires all students to take at least one course in cultural diversity in the United States, of which many, if not all, ASM courses meet that requirement. Now, let's fast forward a bit. Karen Sue leaves Penn for the University of Illinois at Chicago to help establish their version of Pats. Shortly after she leaves, the duties are split into two separate distinct roles, though Pats and Asm continue to be closely aligned with each other. Saji, Dana, and other early UAB members graduate from Penn. Dr. Rose retires, and Dr. Grace Cow receives tenure and assumes the directorship of the program. Dr. Mark Chang leaves Penn, while Dr. Josephine Park and Dr. David Eng joined the English department, which, in addition to Dr. Azuma, brought the total number of tenure-track faculty in Penn's ASM program to four total. ASM even had actor Cal Penn come in for a year or so to teach a course on Asian Americans in media. The 10th anniversary of ASM came and went in 2006, with Scott Kuraseke coming back to talk about his involvement in forming the program in the 90s. And that's the state of ASM come 2008. Tell us
0: more about the events of that year, I turned to alumni Ben Aliswag. So my name is Benjamin Aliswag, class of 2009 at Penn. I majored in English, creative writing, and then also minored in Asian American studies. And these days I'm a program manager at a late stage startup. Ben had gotten interested in ASM after participating in a poly early on in his time at Penn. I think there's a a combination of a different number of things that ended up inspiring my interest in Asian-American activism and then Asian-American studies was a program that I'm sure you're familiar with called APOLI. From there, I was already an English major at the time, and so I was like, you know, I don't want to just, you know, talk the talk. So I decided to like enroll in one of the courses that was Dr. Josephine Park's Asimlet class, one of my favorite courses, we'll speak highly of it. Once I took her course, um, and just being like the English nerd that I am and was, it just was a easy decision for me to end up studying. In addition to becoming an ASA minor, Ben also found
1: his way to becoming chair of the Asia Pacific Student Coalition, or APSC, the umbrella organization for Penn's Asian Interest Cultural Groups on campus. And APSC had their fair share of controversies to deal with at the time, such as one incident involving the Punchbowl
0: magazine. A comedy magazine at Penn published an entire spread around where Asians don't belong. And there was like a back and forth in the Daily Pennsylvanian with editorials, and we had lots of sensitivity training meetings. With that incident only recently
1: in the rearview mirror, Ben got an email one day that would spur him and APSC
0: into action yet again. On just some mundane day, I get an email from the ASM advisory board from Dr. Cow saying, like, there's been a severe budget cut proposed for Asian American studies. Dr. Kao's telling me that she's threatening to quit or step down. The TLDR of the issue is that like this proposed cut would essentially be so severe that it would cripple the department and make it impossible for it to continue in the next, you know, 2-3 years.
1: While I couldn't find an exact number on how much ASM's budget would be decreased by, an article from the Daily Pennsylvania at the time noted that ASM would only be able to offer one course that was not housed in another department. And this was all still while ASM did not yet have any full-time administrative staff members. While well, we'll talk to Dr. Grace Cow later in the series. When I spoke to her, she said that she had taken on directorship of the program with assurances from administration that a certain minimum level of support would be provided. Hence, her threat to resign the directorship when these cuts were made without warning. It's also worth noting that these budget cuts were communicated on and decided upon without any input or discussion from the Asian American Studies program. Functionally, this would have killed off any chance of the program surviving long-term into the future.
0: When we get this news, we're obviously outraged. There was just this, like... Discrepancy between like glorifying us as Asian Americans with this course with CalPEN and then threatening to cut the program and eventually like removing it from a curriculum standpoint. So, our first point of action was to like just convene sort of the powers that be. So, that was my board, the APSC board, and the ASM advisory board. So, Ben, APSC, and ASM UAB all leaped into action, reaching out to their contacts, including our very own alumni network, UPAN. We essentially worked with, like, UPAN to sort of share that knowledge around. We kind of made a list of all the things that would give us clout and, like, recognition. Like, we reached out to journalists in Philadelphia. At this time, like, it was still a blog world. And so we reached out to Angry Asian Man, this blog that kind of just highlights activism. And so, like, we basically got, like, a hundred people to write into Angry Asian Man talking about this potential threat. Like he even made fun of us a little bit in the blog and was saying that like, it's, it looks like someone copy and pasted the same message and emailed it to us from like 20 different accounts. But like that was our grassroots approach. In our mind, we we're like, if we could get enough people angry about this, like we could stop this from happening. Ben, by virtue of his role as chair
1: of APSC, also had another avenue to make his and the Asian American communities voice
0: heard i did have the privilege to serve on um university council right and so university council gives seven undergraduate leaders a seat at the table with like amy gutman president and other leaders and there just happened to be a university council meeting that week i was like what other way to display sort of our disapproval with this budget cut which is then to just like bring it up with the entire faculty at this meeting and I would say like it was pretty controversial thing to do (laughs) in that world you're supposed to like follow these rules there's certain decorum right I was a student wearing sweatpants all the time but like when I go to that meeting all of a sudden I had to like wear a suit there's uh, basically an open forum at the end of every meeting and so I remember the transition I used to like Amy Gutman said something about like, you know, we really cherish diversity. And so I like raised my hand. I'm like, speaking of diversity, like, if that is something that is part of our mission, I would just like to alert us about like the recent budget cut that was proposed on Asian American studies, which would eventually sever us from existing as a program in perpetuity. And I tell you, it was like 100% silent. Like, I think maybe after like a minute, she looked like the dean of the college to like sort of get more information. And then that person stumbled with an answer. In the moment, I actually like started to feel bad. I was like, man, am I being aggressive? And I remember it just the subject was eventually changed. And they said, like, we'll follow up with you, essentially. After the university didn't get back to them after that night, Ben and APSC took things to another level. After a a day after that, we didn't really hear back from them. What we did is said okay we tried to coordinate with multiple people in administration i brought it up in front of an entire governing body the last thing we can do is protest like have a literal full-blown rally in front of college hall it's funny today when i look at protests and think about oh i was part of one and like kind of started one some of them are organic but some of them are planned like this one was a very intentional rally because we wanted to have like a huge presence and so part of planning the rally is that we essentially wanted to send an ultimatum to Amy Guttman. So we sent an email to her, CC'd her secretary, and basically wrote that like, hey, we have a large amount of folks supporting us. And then we sort of linked to everything, Angry Asian Man, all of the news sources. And we said, you know, if we can't come to an agreement around this uh, budget cut, then, you know, we're gonna continue on with our rally in front of College Hall at like 1 p.m. on Friday. I know it was a Friday. So that was like sent on a Wednesday night now while I couldn't see the actual email sent myself
1: I've been told that the email included some vague ultimatum about having penn restore asm's budget or else I asked Ben what was that or else
0: yeah I don't know what the or else was when I look back if we weren't if we didn't have this ultimatum I don't know if would still exist, right? Because after the ultimatum happened, the morning before the rally, legit, no lie, two hours before, she emailed and said, it's been resolved. And I called Dr. Cal and I was like, is this email real? Like, can you confirm that the budget proposal has been suspended? And she's like, yes, it's real. We won. So yeah, the ultimatum worked.
1: Admittedly, it is a bit anticlimactic that it got resolved Behind closed doors, but enough support was guaranteed that Dr. Cow stayed on as director and the program would continue on, at least for a couple more years. Though there was still the matter of everyone who had gotten riled up and were ready
0: to protest on College Green in a couple of hours. And so i said well let's still have a a protest but let's just make it a celebration and we still had that group come in front of college green instead of protesting we had people sign up for Asm courses honestly amy gumman came i gave her the bullhorn she talked to everyone she celebrated our program celebrated the faculty and there was a understanding there that like this was important so while asm was saved for the time being the work wasn't done I still struggled with the fact that like, okay, we did all this work, but are people going to take the courses? Are people going to stay interested in Asian American studies? Like you have the protests, which, you know, when I look back, it's like fun. <laughs> I know it's like the, the wrong word to say it, but it's like, that's the stuff that makes you feel alive. But you also need leaders who are going to do the work that will be institutionalized. When we are able to win this sort of fight with Amy Gutman, I viewed it as a celebration, but it was definitely we won a battle, not a war. Because, like, who has control over the budget in three years? I won't be there, right? It's because that that Punchbowl thing I told you about, they had already done something similar to that five years ago before it came. They created some other racist language around Asians, and it was published... And then there was this whole drama with the university and like whether or not we should do sensitivity training, but like that was five years ago before I came. By the time I was there, like it's a whole new group of kids, right? The school kind of almost relies on this rotating door of leaders. They only have to deal with a problem for four years and then they can kind of like cover it up. The never-ending nature of the struggle for recognition of asthma aside, Ben is still proud of his work at Penn. For me, that work was so important, right? The amount of identity work that I was able to do through ASM, I think just in in many ways that I will never comprehend, continue to influence my life and my work and my relationships with people and my friendships. And so like, is ASM for everyone? I don't know. But for the people who sort of really rely on defining their identity or learning more on their identity through through coursework, through through these classes, like I know. impactful it could
1: be. Over the course of this project, I've interviewed a lot of people, some of whom we've heard here, but there are many more who I didn't have time to make contact with. The legacy of Penn's ASM program is built upon a foundation laid by hundreds, if not thousands, of students, faculty, staff, and allies, some of whom never got to see the fruits of their labor, such as Scott Kurasege.
4: Sometimes you don't fight for things that you get in your own time on campus or even in your own lifetime, you know, when you think about the bigger struggles, but you do it for the principal.
1: Sometimes the results we got weren't always what we wanted. Alonso Makawa. We knew that this
5: issue of a department versus a program was going to be important. I mean, we didn't win it. (laughs) You know, it was just obvious that if the hiring decisions rested in the mainstream departments and that Asian American studies as its own self could not make offers or make tenure decisions, that the program was going to be limited. And of
1: course, I think that's that is kind of what has happened. Consider that foreshadowing for later episodes. But even when things didn't work out exactly as we wished, it's still important that Penn's Asian students fought to self-determine their own educational
0: experience, even if it wasn't always easy. Ben Ali Swag. And I feel like this is why Asian American studies is so important. I think a white person would not have felt as uncomfortable as I did going through this process. We learn through Asian American studies that like there are like a confluence of historical moments and societal relationships that have happened that sort of made Asian folks scared to like speak out. Seeing that manifest with my fear of like, all I'm saying is like, you guys are being unfair, right? All I'm saying is like, you respect diversity. Why are you cutting diversity? But for some reason, you know, it it feels like I'm being a troublemaker. As Dr. Rose notes in the closing
1: words of her reflections on the ASM program, written in 2000,
3: We have come a long way in the three and a half years of our existence. Yet in this, and many other areas, our work has just begun.
1: Many thanks to all the individuals I interviewed for this episode: Dr. Faria Khan, Dr. Scott Kurasege, Alonso Macawa, Joe Sun, Kate Lam. Dr. Gary Okohiro, Dr. Karen Su, Dr. Dana Nakano, Saji Philip, and Benly Suaga. Suwag. Also, thanks to Lily Lowe, class of 2005, and Dr. Rosé, who, while I didn't record an interview with them, both provided valuable insights into my research. Dr. Rosé's manuscript can be found on Penn's ASM website and was voiced by...
3: Recorded by Diana Wing Penn class of 2016.
1: We've talked a lot in this episode about student activists who planted seeds that they themselves will not be able to harvest. Next week, we'll fast forward from the past to the present to meet some of those students who are enjoying that harvest, as we explore the impact Asian American Studies has had on some current students at Penn in discovering who they are and who they might become. A quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed on this show are of those appearing on this podcast alone, and do not reflect those of any other organizations, including the University of Pennsylvania. Music in this episode is provided by Sandro Sandosekar, aka Fortissimo, and Ram Villarica, aka Ascal, both Penn Undergraduate Class of 2016, other music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Episode art provided by Sophie Hurt, editing and production provided by Ninzaboy Media, Special thanks to the Pan-Asian American Community House, the ASM Undergraduate Advisory Board, Alumni Relations, Annabelle Estrada, and Dr. Faria Khan for their support. For questions or inquiries, you can email us at upan.podcast at That's U-P-A-A-N podcast at Or reach out on Facebook or Instagram. Links to all of those as well as where you can find our show on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play are in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Till next time, keep it funky.
7: Cause when I'm down the street, My i overdrive.
10: overdrive And um, Jen will tell you this horrific story about how I was wearing these like white jeans, which is a lie. I'm just going to tell you now if you ever talk to her. But... um